This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com MBO. Terms and conditions apply. A Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Welcome to Real GM Radio. This is Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. This episode is with Matt Steinmetz. He's a longtime San Francisco Bay Area sports writer and personality, and he currently hosts the NBA show on local radio 95.7 here. I've known him for years because he was covering the Warriors when I started covering the Warriors, and that's where we started. We talked a lot about them and their success this season. Then we got into some other broader NBA topics, but I think you'll really enjoy it. Conversation runs a little over an hour 15 and talk about Clay Thompson's development, the differences between Kerr and Jackson as coaches, and where this team might be going, both in this year and in the future. So, hope you enjoy it. It was a blast to record. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me. I figure the best place to start, considering both of our backgrounds, is with the Warriors. What do you think is the biggest change for this year that's led to their success? The biggest change this year? I actually think that it's been... I actually think it's been a lot of subtle little changes rather than one big thing. But, uh, you know, in order to answer your question, I think, you know, Kerr's a difference. I think Bogut's a difference the way he's playing. But I guess it, it would have to be, I would say, Kerr slash chemistry, just because it seems obvious to me they're, they're feeling comfortable about being together now for a couple years. And then. There's just no denying at this point, at least, Kerr has seemed to, you know, if you look on the roster, just about everybody, maybe with the exception of Iguodala, and you could make a case he's starting to play better, is playing well under Kerr. So he's got to, he has to get some credit for that. So I would say, I would say Kerr has, has kind of amped it up a notch, and then just the natural chemistry that this team's uh, beginning to develop, they're using it to their advantage against inferior teams for sure. 
Yeah, I think that hits on a couple of, of major things. And one of the well, something that I had noticed is that I thought in the last couple of years, Jackson Malone, everybody, they had good chemistry on defense. They knew where they were supposed to be, and I think that's gotten even better. But I feel like that is now coming into form on the offense, that the guys have a better understanding of where teammates are going to be and have an offense that makes more sense with the guys that they have. Yeah, well, there's, there's no doubt that the, the ball is moving more. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, you know, I think one of the subtle things that Kerr's done is, you know, I think I think Mark Jackson was content to let Curry be a, a one, you know, or for, for the most part handle it on a, in an odd man front, which mean which meant Curry alone, and he was comfortable having Curry make a lot of plays, and Curry can make plays. There's no doubt about it. But also, Steph's going to make mistakes the more plays he tries to make, particularly when he's put in a position where playmaking is, is his number one duty. And so, there, so Jackson was encouraging that. So it made Curry into somebody who, you know, maybe, I don't want to say forced, but was, you know, maybe trying to do maybe more than he wanted to. And so I think... So the, and I, I think that's where the turnovers came from, particularly at the top of the floor where he made a ton of them last year. But I just think what's, what Kerr's, he hasn't taken that away from him, obviously. But if you'll notice a lot of times, uh, Curry will bring the ball up across half court and he'll, he'll, th- he'll pitch one, you know, he'll throw one, and he'll throw a pass. In other words, he doesn't even, either the offense is initiate, initiated with him throwing a pass quickly over half court or, you know, he does it to initiate it. But the point is, is that, you know, less frequently now he's dribbling out there, messing around, you know, now everybody's looking at him on defense and that's a tough, that's makes it tougher to make a play. And I just think Kerr has limited those opportunities a little more for Curry. And consequently what's happened is Curry's gotten more efficient in the times when he's asked to do that. I think that's been that's been a real positive that's made the Warriors a little better on offense. You know, that's just kind of one of the one of the things. You know, I I just the other thing is Bogut is smart. I mean, Andrew Bogut is a very good passer, maybe the best passing center in the league. When you have a guy like him who he's just so much more skilled than ninety five percent of the other centers he plays against. So he just, you know, he, he makes nice passes and he gets the rebounds just because he's less, you know, he's he's adept and those centers are kind of clumsy and slow. And people, you know, guards haven't figured out how mobile he is around the basket area. So, you know, it's just, uh, I'm just I'm answering in a million different ways, I guess. But th- those are two ways, I think, that they've really taken a step up at Curry's just taken a little less responsibility and gotten more efficient, I think, in terms of his playmaking, you know, assist the turnover. And then I just don't think you can underestimate Bogut's impact, like, all over the place. Something that I've fixated on a little bit is that in one of the early post-game pressers, I think it was fourth or fifth game, Kerr compared Bogut to Arvidas Sabonis. And I thought about that as being really interesting in a couple ways, and one of them was the way that he uses him and the differences between that and how Mark Jackson used him. And it feels to me that, particularly with Bogut, 
Kerr has a better idea what kind of a resource he is on offense and is focused on using that. And I feel like that's also Draymond Green playing more with the starters, Harrison playing more with, with Curry. I think that that all fits in, is that his goal is to put guys in their best position to succeed, but also to maximize their contributions. Whereas Jackson, at points, it felt like he more wanted to do his thing and was using the talent as a vessel for that as opposed to maximizing them. Well, getting back to Sabonis, that's not a bad comparison except, and then who made it, Kerr? Yeah, that was Steve. Steve Kerr made it. Yeah, Sabonis could shoot it. And Sabonis, like when he got to the, you know, he was he could actually make threes in, in his career later. But he was, that's like, the passing is very similar and the ability to play in the high high post is similar. Sabonis was better post up because he had a hook shot. Sabonis was incredible for those out there who uh, uh, who didn't get a chance to see him play. And when he came to the NBA, he, like nobody ever really saw Sabonis play in his prime. That's what kind of stinks is is when he you know he got banged up a little later in his career, and then like you know, nobody's got those Russian game tapes when he was twenty three years old, you know. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean. You know, I just think, I hear what you say about Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr. I think it's, and you're probably right in terms of that nuance, uh, what, what Kerr does. I just think Kerr is, is more creative. And I think Kerr sees the game in, with more of an open mind. And I do think that, you know, Kerr relies heavily on, I kind of call it the Larry Bird model, where Bird's the head coach, but... You know, Dick Harder was the defensive guy, and maybe Car or Carlisle was a defensive guy, and you know, Harder was Harder was always defense, but Carlisle was offense. You know, that's what I see Steve Kerr as just a guy who's not just a guy, but he's the coach. But you know, Gentry does the offense, and Adams does the defense, and and he relies on them, and then he says, all right, let's 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 play this kind of defense, or you know, let's do that kind of. You know, let's start playing into this offensively. And I just think on both sides, they're more advanced than they were uh, last year. I think they were capable of more that maybe the coaching staff was giving them. I, you know, I think that is a, you know, I think that is a fair criticism. Yeah, I think that's a fair criticism too, and I think it's a great point about how he's using the staff. And to me, basketball, especially in the NBA, there's a lot of ego involved and the ability to have people who have more experience than you on your staff and give them actual authority is a really notable step. And you think about what may have happened. I don't know all the details with Kidd and Lawrence Frank. You know, there are lots of pitfalls when an inexperienced coach brings on those people. But at the same time, you have the most potential for growth. And it at this point, obviously, it's very early. It seems like the Warriors are on the higher end of that potential. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I go back to with Mark Jackson is... A lot of times he leaned on, I've said this before, he's leaned, he's leaned on when, when he gets questioned about, or when he got questioned about strategy or what happened late. You know, he, he'd be questioned on what happened. And he, he'd, always, he'd often rely on, you know, at the end of the day, you know, players are going to make plays. It's a player's league. It's a miss or make league. You know, you know it's, it's, and what that did, you know, what that told me was that, you know, when, when push really came to shove, how detailed was he going to be in terms of creating something either offensively uh, in general or specifically with the play to really get something 
try to get something really good. I mean, it doesn't sound to me like, I mean, I know you could rationalize it, but it doesn't sound like those two really go hand in hand. What that goes hand in hand with to me is, you know what, let's, uh, let's post up Clay down here against Hill, against the uh, Pacers last year when Clay hit the little turnaround to win the game in Indiana. You remember what I'm talking about? I do, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's like, to me, that's, that would be Mark Jackson's, that would be his play. You know, that would, that, that would be it. It would kind of stop there. We're going we're gonna to go down to Clay down there. We're going to try to win the game, and he does, and he wins it. It's a good call and, and absolutely deserves credit for that. I think the Warriors are at, at the next level, though, or Steve Kerr's trying to get him there and is on his way in terms of just more sophistication, more, you know, more three-quarters of the game they're just relying on, on an offense or a system rather than, called plays for example or set plays you know i think they're they're probably i'm sure they're doing more of that uh you know where they they basically come up the court and depending on what curry does it sets in motion you know movement and passing and out of that they they guys have options and opportunities and can do stuff off you know on their own as opposed to you know a play where a guy throws to the side, cuts, screens, other guy comes up, two guys shuffle underneath, you know. So I think that's that's where he's uh, taking it to the next, taking the next step also. I'll give an example. I, I Since apparently a lot of the postgame wasn't on yesterday because the game was on TNT, we're recording this on Friday morning after the OKC game was last night, and the last offensive possession of the game was a Harrison Barnes post-up on Reggie Jackson, he ended up making the shot, and one of the post-game questions, unsurprisingly to Kerr, was, what did you think about the possession? Kerr said he wasn't thrilled with it, and right. the entire press corps sat there and kind of chuckled to themselves and were amused, because that, that's really the difference, is that he wasn't thrilled with it, it ended up working out, but he felt that they could do more than that, and I think that is a pretty good encapsulation of the offensive difference. Well... Yes, but I, I disagree with Kerr, uh, and the, I disagree with the notion that, you know, in the, in the last two minutes of a game, uh, or real, you know, I don't know, I, I can't quantify whether it's one minute, three minutes, but I'm convinced, I think those are the times you must, you, you have to run plays. Because what happens is, if you run your offense, you are possibly allowing a less than number one option or, you know, you're, you're allowing the possibility of getting something that you really don't want in that situation. Or, you know, you're, you know, now you're given a lot of freedom to five guys. Now, if you really, I mean, you know, Spurs probably can do it, but I mean, I'm talking, this takes years and years and years, really. So I, I do think you have to run plays, but I think what he means is what he can't stand. And I can't either is guard on the wing, looking into Barnes, faking, you know, faking, throws a pass in there, and everybody knows, you know, the ball never switched sides, and everybody knows that Barnes is posting up to try to win the game. I think he's not averse to that, but he'd like to get into it in a different manner where the ball comes over from the other side, and maybe it's more of a quick hitter where, you know, Barnes, you know, Barnes has to make a decision and account, you know, whether he's going to, you know, take a little fade away or try to score rather than bounce, bounce, and the whole defense is, is uh, focused on you. I think, and I, I, I agree with him there. Yeah, that's a great point. I and 
I don't see a lot of reason these days to to feed the post in the first place to tell you you know to tell you the truth. But depending on who the player is, but you know there are certain ways to do it, and I do agree when the ball comes the other way. It's it's much better, especially if you have a guy who's catching it on the block who realizes that he can, you know, he's got a quick opportunity to do something rather than hold it and let him get reset. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think it's about process. I want to go quickly back. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole to Arvita Sabonis, but I've thought about him sometimes because what I've read, I obviously haven't seen a ton of that that early footage, but. I think about a guy like him and how that could have impacted particularly bigs that were coming up in the U.S. to have had a guy like that when you see the impact of Dirk on guys like Kevin Durant and thinking about how the game might have changed if a guy like that or Oscar Schmidt, to the same point, had played in America. You mean, basically with Sabonis, you just mean the a big man shooting 25-footers? 25-footers, and that is such a willing and, and aggressive passer. I feel like that would have given some development. So maybe you see some of those guys that are coming up in the in the pipeline then that see that passing could be passing from the post in particular. Oh, yeah, I mean, I always uh, I have a buddy back home we we talk you know we talk hoops. He's a coach, and I I say to him all the time, if I had a kid, uh, if I had a boy or girl, it doesn't matter. And I I saw at an early age they were going to be tall, they were going to be you know a tall girl or boy, I would put a ball in their hands and, and teach them as fast as possible or try to get them as quickly as possible to understand dribbling and passing. Uh, even though I hate dribbling from a guard, if, if you're tall and you dribble and pass, you will play at the highest level you could possibly play at. If you're good enough to go you know, play in the pros, because you, you're absolutely right. You know, I just, uh, you know, I just, I think of the impact when I think of centers and people say, well, where, where have the American centers gone? I mean, to me, it's like, I don't, I don't think it's a mystery at all. When the three, you know, when in 19, uh, the three point line came in in college, I think in 87, because I graduated from college in 86. And actually in 86, there was a three, there was no three point line and no shot clock in college. Man. So, if what's the three point line in, in college? Let's just say, I don't know what it is. 20, let's say 22 and a half. I don't know what it is though. Something like that. Yeah, that's about right. I'll, I'll pull it up while we're talking. Okay. So uh, hypothetically in the snap of a finger in one rule change, they changed the 22 and a half footer or whatever it is from the absolute positive worst shot you could take not only the worst shot you could take, but one that nobody really ever thought of taking into by far the best shot you could ever convert in a basketball game in one snap of a finger, because with no shot clock and no three point line guys didn't take 23 footers. There was no reason to take a 23 footer, particularly with any, you know, you took a 23-footer and you missed in college with a disciplinarian coach, you're coming out of the game. I mean, there's just no reason for it without a shot clock. So in the snap of a finger, that's when it all started. So we are now basically through a generation from 85, 95, 05, 50. We're 30 years in. We now have players like Steph Curry who grew up with a three-point line. And 
why would you possibly throw the ball? Why would a center go down to the low post and stand on the block and work on post moves when chances are he's going to get fouled? There's a small, and then he's going to make one of two. So you go down there and you do all this work, and this guy gets one point as opposed to a smaller guy just out in the perimeter. And if you give him an inch, he's going to take a shot. And if it goes in, it's worth three, three points it's worth. Three points more than when you break your back to go into Dwight Howard, who's limited in the post, and he finally makes a move and gets by a guy. But because he can't shoot foul shots, he gets his head taken off, and he goes to the line and makes one out of two. Will you tell me how that helps? Yeah, and, and the the other point with that that you hit on is that it also puts so much more wear and tear on your body. And so you not only mm-hmm. have the fact that you're getting less points, but you're also getting hit, you're getting, you know, you're getting raked depending on how it's going. And if you're a three-point shooter, yeah, you might get ankles and things like that. We've seen that with Steph and Jamal Crawford and lots of guys, but you're not going to get those catastrophic kinds of things and you're not going to get the accumulation. So I can see that. And to me, it gets into a bigger question of player development. Like you see people talk about with Anthony Davis that he has really good handling for a big guy because he grew so late because he started as a guard. And what mm-hmm. I always think about with that is why can't we teach our big guys to do the same thing? Because that's a useful skill for them to have. And it would just increase the quality of play in college and the pros. If we taught everybody how to dribble and pass. Um, I'd rather see the rules get rechanged. I think right now the because even at the end of the day, if you have a big guy, even if Anthony Davis, you know, really becomes a, I mean, he's kind of different because we're talking about maybe the you know guy's got a chance to be one of the real real good players in history. I just think in general, small the small players have too much of an advantage right now in the game, and that's that's coming from somebody who was small and play the game the fact that the further away you can you score is worth the most is just kind of you know anathema to the way the game was you know why that what what the game was about and to me that's a fundamental difference it's like you know baseball's had a lot of changes but you know you try to score runs and a home run and you know, home runs worth a grand slam's worth four, and a home runs worth one, and the fences are basically basically the same. But you know, basketball has gone from a you know the goal was to get as close as you could to the basket to score to optimize your chances, and now it's the further out you score, the more it's worth. So you, to me, you de you're de incentivizing scoring from close to the basket, which I think is you know will. I mean, how many, how many, what percentage of shots are the Rockets taking from three now? 40, 35? Yeah, I think it's at least in the mid 30s. And I think the other component of that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that teams are more willing to do things like intentional fouling now. So guys who are bad free throw shooters are much larger negatives now than they used to be because those kind of tactics are just, they're completely commonplace if it's appropriate. Yeah, I mean, if, if you have a smart team, they know they know what to do there. You know, the other thing that you know, I and I I've said this before. I you know, I didn't think the Warriors could win a title. I guess heading into this year or maybe last year, I actually do think they could if it falls into place because I, I think we're at a point in in kind of basketball history where 
the three-pointer has never been used more advantageously nor defended any more poorly. It, it kind of is a perfect storm. And, you know, the, the three-point shot is not a gimmick. It is not only is, is it not a gimmick, it's many teams' foundation. And there's an old school thought in the NBA, and they just they still they just haven't come around to how important. You know, it's like I, who am I watching the other day? I'm watching the Warriors, and they're playing. I don't even know. Maybe it was Orlando, and that Alfred Payton guy he takes a shot. I'm like, there's no chance that ball is going in. You know, there's just you see these other guards when these other teams shoot, you know, they're hoping the ball goes in from 20 feet on, not even just threes, 20 and out. You see the Warriors take shots. It's like you expect it to go in. You're expecting it to go in. And it's like, it's, it's as simple as that. That's why the Warriors have a chance to win it because they shoot the ball better than anybody else. And people still don't realize it yet, you know? And as you and I have talked about before, the other component of the Warriors is that you don't have to defend Curry and Clay to the three-point line. You have to defend them a couple feet past it. And that really messes with teams, too, because you have to defend them differently than any other backcourt. Correct. And that's why I'm anxious to see what happens in the playoffs. Because I do think that when you play the Warriors five, six, seven games, and you keep getting hit over the head with how far they can shoot from the basket, that they extend to 26, 28 feet. I do believe you, you'll get better at it. I think it's, hard when, it's harder when you see the Warriors here and there. They come into your arena. You go into their arena. It's just like zip, zip. You know, it's just like, holy cow, these guys can shoot from far. Well, yeah. Yeah, you don't see this very much. In a seven-game series, six-game series, whatever, you're going to see it every you know, every, every game, it's going to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And they're going to be more aware, but of course, you know, that, that's not just the, that doesn't just solve the problem. That just means you got to guard him further out on the floor, which means the floor is even more spread, which means if they get by you, you're in a big time disadvantage, but I still maintain that's the way you got to play the Warriors. Yeah, I agree with you, and the other reason that I think they're a title contender, and this is the big difference, though this was true the last couple of years, is that they're such a good defensive team that in a lot of ways to me it parallels some football teams that were built around strong defenses and then went a little bit more aggressive on offense instead of going with the ground game because the idea is that if you can get up to a certain level, then you'll be able to carry it. And that's what makes the Warriors different is that they can outscore you, but they can also be a really good defensive team and then get enough offense to do it. I'm not there on their defense as much as some other people. I realize that, that the stats are probably heavily in their favor. You know, but I, I, I still don't think defensively they're as good as Memphis. I don't think defensively they're as good as the Spurs. And that's probably it. However, I do think that they're, they're, for example, last night's game, Draymond Green was, you know, he was good again. There's no doubt. I'm not taking, but there, you, you could see last night there were plays where you paid the price for his being undersized. And now, again, I want to make this clear. It's like, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying he didn't have a good game or he's not good, any of that stuff. But I think against the Memphises and the San Antonios, 
and maybe even, you know, and, and the Oklahoma cities, that's when he's just going to make fewer good plays, maybe one or two less good plays during the course of a game, and maybe one or two more bad plays. Well, that's important. You know, that's big when, you, when if something like that happens. You know, and, you know, last night he, you know, the thing about Draymond is when he makes a mistake, he'll usually come back with uh, at least one good thing and sometimes two. You know, but in the playoffs, perhaps you know that 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 changes because the the entire team's better. So I, I still, I still reserve a little judgment on their defense. Just the other thing is like. You know, they had Iguodala on Durant last night. It was nothing. It meant nothing. Zero. So, I, you know, I don't know about Iguodala. Clay, to me, is very good when he's guarding point guards, like a Westbrook or a, you know, he'd be great if he had to guard Curry, kind of. But when he guards two guards, he's, you know, he's, he's just okay. He's not, he's not good. And, you know, Bogut. I mean, if Bogut's not there, it hurts. It hurts. And what happens when Lee comes back? We all know what happens defensively when Lee comes back. Yeah, I, I agree with you on on every part of that. And the Bogut thing is really important. I, I think that he's an essential part of this team. I think that Bogut and Curry are no the, two non, the two non-negotiables. And David Lee leads into the next question for me, which is... Well, hold, hold on. One thing, one thing I do want to say about their defense. Yeah. Like, and this is, where, this is what I do think... You know, people kind of just don't understand, but it's like why I think they're good defensively is because when Bo gets on the floor, they re- there is something to, you know what, if Curry gets beat, it's not the end of the world. Not only is it not the end of the world, it might be the best thing going because guards, penetrators, have still they still have not figured out that you can't score when you get it in there on Bogut. You cannot score on him if you're a guard. And so they're actually, when, when Curry would funnel him in, or I'm not saying, but they're all funneled to Bogut, it's actually, it actually starts to break because he's going to block the shot and the ball's probably going to be loose or tipped or something, and the Warriors are going to pick it up. And guess what? Now they have four, now they have five guys who can handle the ball and they're all hooking up court. So it's like even even a even a so-called weakness. I'll bet you they've you know yeah have has, has Curry been driven by and the guy's gone in for a layup and scored sure. But I'd love to see a stat where Curry or one of the guards gets beaten, which has led to a block shot and then transition bucket. Because I guarantee you they've had not maybe not as many but a ton of those tons. I'm so happy you made that point, and that also fits in with the other idea that the Warriors are doing, which is switching everything. And you get into some mismatches when they do that stretch, when particularly two through four, when they're playing Draymond at power forward, that they switch everything, and that leads to some mismatches sometimes. But if you have Bogut behind it, the consequences are so much less dire. Yeah, and the bottom line is you switch everything because you believe all those guys have a shot to defend somebody, and... You know, I mean, give it up for Draymond. He does. You know, Draymond is, you know, Draymond's the kind of guy where I do think if you, the more you, def- the more you realize he's defending you, the better chances you have of scoring against him. But when you just, when he's just hitting you once in a while on defense, you know, you just, you know, let's say you don't get four straight touches in the low post, but you get one a quarter. 
Well, that one possession going up against him, you know, he, he makes that hard. Uh, he, he defends that. He's very good at defending the first, second time against a guy. And he's pretty good after that. But what I'm saying is I think it diminishes once you go after that. But, uh, I mean, so that's the one thing they think they can do. And it's kind of true because Clay, Barnes, Draymond, you know, they could all, they could Dalla, they could all, they all give you uh, a shot against a guard or a big man. And that's also why I was so compelled that they brought in Justin Holiday last night for the first time during the quarter, because he's another guy that fits into that concept. He can't do as much on fours, but he fits in that more than a guy like Barbosa, though obviously he has offensive deficiencies. Yeah, I think Barbosa's, I don't want to say he's done, but Barbosa's not really going to be much of a factor, uh, I don't think. Because I, I think he's a guy who... Yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to afford to play him long stretches in a in a big series uh, or in a big game. I, I might be wrong. There might be a spot or two for him, but I think he's just going to be a you know he's he's just going to play here and there. I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know much about Holiday. Um, you know, clearly they probably need him to switch on the pick and roll more than hit a three. So I'm sure he won't be in a position to fail, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think their defense is, is definitely above average. I want to see if it's, you know, Memphis, San Antonio caliber. Because, you know, it's got night like last night. I mean, you know, that game could have been headed for 125-120. So, you know, it, it kind of depends on the opponent. Yeah, I think the big difference between particularly San Antonio because of guys like Kawhi and Tiago Splitter and Tim Duncan, the difference between the Spurs and the Warriors is that I think the Spurs can do a pretty good job against everyone, whereas the Warriors have these blind spots, and so the hope is that you don't hit them in a seven-game series. But, and I agree with you, I think Memphis is in the same category as a defensive team. I don't completely believe in their offense. And the Warriors don't have that... They don't have that best against everybody idea yet, and to me, that's why if you could get and I had a I had an East Coast writer ask me this. They're like, "Would you trade David Lee for Kevin Garnett?" And I'm like, "Yes, absolutely," because I think that he not only gives you that big a more another big man defender. He's not obviously what he used to be, but theoretically, if you played him and Bogut together for stretches against a Memphis against Zebo and all that, that would give you that defensive versatility against another set of teams oh i would do that trade in a heartbeat i mean it wouldn't even be what's garnett does garnett have is he on the end of the uh is he on the end of his deal yes this is his last year so the logic for for brooklyn i'm not saying they would do it would be that they would get another year of a player because presumably i think this is garnett's last season and at least it's his last season on brooklyn because they're probably not going to be good next year that would be a great trade for the Warriors. That'd be an unbelievable trade because obviously it'd allow you to sign Draymond or re-sign Draymond without much of a problem. I think, yeah, Garnett would be. I think, yeah. I mean, if you're like, to me, the Warriors' wish list, you know, if they are you know, twenty-two and three, yeah, kind of a ideally be like an athletic shot blocker, Garnett type, maybe a younger Garnett. But I mean, again, this is like when you're going for a championship. But that's kind of what they're doing. Um, but, you know, I, I also think Garnett could play the exact same way. Think about Garnett on the offensive end. He could basically play exactly like Bogut, except he might be able to, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll make that 18-foot shot that nobody guards Bogut on. So, yeah, I was you know, talking about could, that I last night. Really, 
I was talking about last yeah. night how I awesome it would be if Bogut could do too. that. Yeah. If Bogut could one summer, obviously he has free throw trouble, so it seems like it would be out of it. But if he, if he could ever hit that shot, teams would just not know what to do with themselves. Yeah, and you know what? Interestingly, though, like I always, you know, you always hear that, but it's like, huh? If let's say he did, you know, it's it's even kind of like the Blake Griffin thing. I mean, Blake Griffin's definitely knocking that eighteen twenty footer down now more, but you're still going to give it to him. You're still going to give it to him. You're probably going to give it. You know, it's like you're probably going to give it to him forever, to tell you the truth, because you know it's kind of like it's kind of like Draymond Green. You know, he can he can improve all he wants. I don't mean that condescending, but he's still going to be the one they're going to let open if he's on this team. You know what I mean? So, because he's he's not, he's not as good as Curry or Thompson. So he's they're always you're always going to settle for that. And that's why Harrison um, Barnes in the starting lineup makes so much sense because you're moving him down to the fourth or fifth option, and he's a pretty great fourth or fifth option. Yeah, and I think he likes, you know, North Carolina runs uh, Dean Smith's, or they used to run it, you know, there's an open offense where it's, it's again, not, not more offense than plays. And I do think Harrison Barnes is the kind of guy who, you know, he, he, he just wants to be involved. And I think this is, it just suits him that, that, you know, he doesn't touch the ball three times in a row or two times in a row, and then doesn't get it three times. He'd rather touch it five times in five possessions, and you know what? He'll throw a pass three of those times and maybe take a shot once, and then he'll try to make a play for – you know what I mean? But I think he just, he just enjoys playing that way more than I stand on the other side of the court. And it, like a guy like Harrison Barnes is so smart that it's like he gets bummed out whether the play's called for him or not. You know what I mean? Because – he just doesn't really, he's just not really into that playing that way, whether he's the one getting the post up or he's the one standing in the corner. So I think he's a guy who's definitely benefited from, you know, from what Kerr's doing. And he's a very good, at least this year, a very good cutter, and he's learning how to, how to thrive while not being the focal point because eventually when you have Stephen Curry on the court, your guy, your guy's going to turn somewhere, and then you, if you just run in another direction, you're going to get something. And he's gotten some nice putbacks too because he gets into that position and then the offensive rebound comes to him and then he puts it back in. Yes, but so we're, we're, I'll just turn it on you then. You know, I still... You know, yeah, he's doing all these things, but I'm still not crazy about him as a starting three when he's got to go. Like, even last night, you know, he hits the shot. It was over, uh, who, Reggie Jackson? Yeah, it was on Reg. Right. So, it, you know, he's he's still not at a level where he's going up against other threes, really, and winning a lot of those matchups. So, you know, he's... I, I don't know. You know, I, I do. I think he's a guy who benefits. Like, I don't think he'll ever be a star on another team, even if he's theoretically the best player. He, he like, I don't think he has any interest in being that. Yeah, but I don't. Th- I don't, I don't think he much... has the skill either. I don't think he has the ability to be the linchpin. I think that he his game is a third or fourth option guy. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. So, yeah, I just think the other t- like I think. I don't want to say he's just a guy because he's he's more than a guy, but there are other players who could fill a role similar to him in terms of what the Warriors ask him to do. Now, in fairness, you know whether it's happened by you know obvious or happenstance, he is in a spot where 
he's got a nice role. You know, he can hit a three. He's got some freedom. Uh, you know, he's got some guards to take pressure off him. So, yeah, I like I like Barnes. I, I, I don't I don't love him though. He's another, all right. Yeah, another guy that we we're talking about the the athletic big man who can block shot. One of them who just got traded is a former Warrior. I think Brandon Wright, if they could pull it, because I don't know what his use is for Boston right now. He would be a nice fit if you couldn't get a guy like KG. Yeah, I you know honestly, I have. I mean, I've seen him, but you know, I went from a guy. You know, I saw Brandon play every day for a long period of time, and. I even, and he was young, and you could kind of tell, you know, he's going to re- he's going to eventually kind of grow into his body, but I still don't view him as anything more than a fifteen minute per game guy. But again, that that may be that may be what they need. I, I I'd like somebody a little more physical because, I mean, the playoffs are going to get pretty tough, and he's pretty he's not he's not the toughest guy in the world. But yeah, you know, nice little player, nice little player. So we'll we'll finally get back to David Lee. If you were, let's say, if you were Bob Myers, that's more fun than if you were Steve Kerr. What would you be thinking right now in terms of David? Uh, I'd be trying to move him, but I'd be I would have been trying to move him for a while now, and I think it's a problem. It's he's hard to move. I mean, he's really hard to move. He makes a ton of money, although you know it's getting to the end of it now. You know the problem. Here's the problem with David Lee. The problem isn't whether he'll handle his role or he won't handle his role or is he okay with coming off the bench or is he not okay with it? Who cares? I mean, that, that is virtually irrelevant. The big issue to me is when he starts to play and whether he settles into 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 or more, I have no idea. Whose minutes are he's taken is almost irrelevant because it doesn't matter because the player's minutes that he's taking are going to be players that have played extremely well. So I don't know how he's going to come back and give them something or give them an added. I mean, yeah, okay, so he'll, you know, he'll hit a couple lefty uh, half hooks maybe when he gets a smaller guy on him, and he'll, he'll make one out of two of those 18-foot lefty set shots. But he's still going to be taking some minutes from Draymond, some minutes from Spates, some minutes from Bogut or some minutes from Barnes. And all those guys are having great years. So it's going to be hard for him to improve. I mean, even if he's playing well, I don't know that he's going to be giving them what those other guys can or what all the bits and pieces that they were giving them. And it was coming together and making, which is impossible to, to quantify. But we all know it was, it's pretty good. Yeah, we agree fully. So to me, his best value is the break glass in case of emergency when one or more of those guys are hurt, which is happening right now and will happen a fair amount. But if that is a guy's role, then you should try to find somebody else because that's a nice thing to have. That's a luxury. And this isn't a team that needs to have an $11 million luxury if they can get something for him. You know, if there isn't a market for him and right. you're going to do that, then then you do it. You know, you're not going to trade him for a worse contract. You know, you're not going to trade him for a guy like that. But if somebody likes him or somebody has a usefulness, like with, what we're saying with Brooklyn, because Brooklyn isn't going to have money to spend anyway, so they might as well get something. If that kind of option were open, I think you're going to do that. And I think... I hope, I guess is the more accurate word than think, is that 
Myers has come around to that. I think you and I have been in the same place than David Lee for a few years now, and it's nice to see that there's. I think there's a greater possibility that the people who actually have the power are closer to where we've been. Yeah, I think, but I, I will say this. I'll put the caveat on it. I wouldn't trade him now. I, not with what's going on with Bogut. And, and I'll tell you why. Because if, if Bogut is hurt for a while, whether you like it or not, they're looking at a three-big rotation of Azili, Lee, and Green. And you know what? And Barnes, when they, when they want to go that direction. And you know what? That's still pretty good. You know, Bo, you, know you lose you lose something, no doubt, but that, that's where it's like, you know, Lee isn't a stiff. I mean, he's not, he's not useless. And so I, I, don't, I don't touch him right now. I just, I let him come back. I let him play. I hope Bogut comes back. Then you move David to the bench, and you see what happens there. And by that point, by the time you need to make a decision, I do think it'll be the trade deadline. But I wouldn't make it right now. And then depending where they are on the trade deadline, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, what, what's he got? He's got, what's he got? This, the rest of this year and one more. That's it, right? Or right. Two. Yeah, he expires after next season. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden that contract's almost done. So, you know, maybe, you know they, they may need – they're probably in a position where they want to take a guy with an expiring, but they're having trouble getting a guy with an expiring. And teams probably want to give them somebody with three years or even, even the same length. And I think the Warriors don't want to do something where, you know what I mean, that's the only reason they're doing the deal. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. The only caveat I would put on what you said is that if they could get somebody who who fills a similar role like KG, but that's obviously the dream, so that's kind of an exception. Right. Um, yeah. So I mean, I think yeah, I agree. I think if they could get if they could get a guy they thought would be a fifteen to twenty minute player and was expiring and he was a front court guy, yes, they would trade him for David Lee. Have you been as pleased as I have with how well Sean Livingston has played the last few weeks? Yeah, he's been pretty solid. I'll tell you what, he does not miss. He does not miss from 12 to 15 feet. It's amazing. Uh, he has that little, I, haven't, I mean, I didn't realize, I knew he was, you know, I knew he had good numbers, good post-up numbers. Uh, I knew that, obviously. But his, his post-up has been, I mean, I, it's hard to remember missing a post-up. And then that little, that little when he gets into that 12-foot range, I almost tweeted this last night, you know, in terms of guys, in terms of warriors who can create, I mean, he, he may be near the top of the list just because when he raises up, he can get it, he can get it over anybody. So he's, he's turned into an interesting player. I, you know, I wonder what the, you know, I think he's got a threshold where he'll hit law of diminishing returns, but looks like a good pickup now. I didn't think he was going to be this, I didn't like that he couldn't shoot because I, I I just envisioned it being him getting three pointers and not taking them. But you know, again, that's kind of curve figures out a way to get good shots for certain guys. And you know, I mean, he he's taking advantage of Livingston now too. Yeah, and Livingston is a guy who I give a lot of credit to for 
identifying his strengths and weaknesses well. He's somebody who, for whatever reason, has a really good understanding of when he's in a good situation and when he's in a bad situation, and he knows what he's good at, and so he's making these shots, and at first, when you watch him, whether it was last year in Brooklyn or this year, you think, that's not going in, and then you have to recalibrate, and you go, he knows that's going in, you know, he he's really good at that shot, and it's fun to see. And for me, it's been different because I was a big draft guy when he came in and he was a high schooler, but I watched all of the high school games of his that I could get my hands on because I'm a big fan of big point guards. And I'm so thrilled that even though he had those injuries and that's really depressing, that he's been able to turn himself into a different useful NBA player. Uh, No doubt about it. Because if you think about it, you know, his, his gift, his supposed gift was probably twofold, his size and his athleticism. And his athleticism got taken from him at a young age, or a lot of it. And I wonder how many players in his situation, even if they can come back and get healthy, could could have made it. Because they simply didn't like, you know, so what, what, what he's shown me is, so he must have been athletic, he must have had size, and he must have had, like, uh, great, you know, very good instincts. He knows how to play the game. So that's kind of, you know, on the one hand, you're right. I mean, it's kind of kind of sad that, like, God, this guy was athletic, and he also had a little bit of old man game in him, but he never got to do that. But you know what? He's still smart enough and understands the game enough to have a nice, nice role on a team that's playing pretty good. You know, that is, that's definitely, uh, I mean, he's, that's a credit to him for sure. Absolutely. Getting on to the broader league, what have been your takeaways from watching, you know, other teams in the West or East if you think the East is relevant? I think that the Warriors are I think they're better than Houston. I think they're better than the Thunder, even if the Thunder are healthy. Uh I think they're not as good as the Spurs. I think they're equal to the Grizzlies. Dallas is now a wild card because of the Rondo trade. I, you know, I got to let, I got to, I got to give that a chance. And then am I forgetting one? What, what, what are the teams I forget? Portland. Portland. The Warriors are better than Portland. And, and then and the Clippers. The one, oh, and the Clippers. And I think right now the Warriors are slightly better than the Clippers and would beat them in a series. But, I think the Clippers have a move in them. And, I mean, I think, I don't see how Rondo makes the, makes the Mavericks worse. Do you? I, I don't see how he makes them worse, except that there will be an adjustment period, and that'll be hard because they, they, but they have enough of a window. You know, they have 50 games, a little bit more than 50 games before the playoffs. So this isn't like you're making this move at the deadline. If they had made this move at the deadline, I would have been dubious. But they're doing it now. I actually think Brandon Wright played a useful role in that team, but their point guard play was pretty shaky and they're replacing, you know, they're more replacing Jameer and they still have Devin Harris. So if it doesn't work super great, then they can move away from it or they can do different things. But I don't think Dallas, this pushes them over the Warriors, especially because while I love Rick Carlisle, I think Rick Carlisle is the second best coach in the league the margin between Carlisle and Kerr is substantially smaller from a tactical perspective to me in an adjustment, which matters in a seven-game series. Uh, Kerr and Jackson, like I think that difference is very important in a seven-gamer. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't give Carlisle any edge over Steve Kerr in a in a coaching in coaching. In fact, I would I would give the edge to the Warriors. Believe it or not, it's not so much Kerr and Carlisle. It's Gentry and Adams. Yeah, that's fair. I don't. I don't think there's going to, you know, with a possible exception of San Antonio, they are not going to get out strategized. They just there's no way because, and I'll tell you why there's no way. And I don't and. Uh, this is throwing Gentry to the side because I don't know him specifically, but Adams is is a defensive guy. He's just money. He's solid and he knows all that stuff. Kerr has some Don Nelson in him and some Popovich and George Carl in him. He's able to look at the game. And, you know, he's able to look at the game, and you know he's he's not afraid to embrace mismatches. He may not embrace it the way. You know, Mark Jackson does, where it's like, oh, well, he's got a small guy on and post up. Well, Kern looks out on the floor and stuff jumps out at him that, like, you know, it jumps out to those kind of coaches. Popovich, I put Nelly in there, George Carl a little bit. I'm probably forgetting some. And so that's why I don't, that's why I don't think, I don't put the words at a disadvantage to any team when it comes to coaching because I think they have the, I think they have, uh, the ex uh, a foundation of of fundamentals, but then they've also got creative instincts in them, and I think they have that on both ends. I don't necessarily think Dallas has much creativity at the offensive end, you know. Yeah. But the Warriors, the Warriors clearly do. So you know. I, anyway, I I don't. The Warriors aren't going to lose a game because lose a series because of coaching. I I do not believe that. And the other component of this, and some people might be surprised by this, and you might disagree with it, is one coach that I think is actually surprisingly overrated in seven-game series in terms of adjustments and all of that is Doc Rivers. And I think that's part of the reason why the Warriors were so close. I think that he didn't press the advantages that the Clippers had enough. Obviously, they had a lot of other stuff on their plate. But I remember I thought the same thing when he was on the Celtics. He's a great coach. He's a great motivator and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like in a series against the Warriors now, assuming at least close to a full complement, I feel like the Clippers would end up getting outflanked, and they have some really clear weaknesses. The hope for the Clippers fans, and obviously they're a really good team, so it's not like they're they're in a bad place, is that they could get some buyout candidates because they're the only major market team that is going to be in the playoff title mix. And so if theoretically some of the high-end guys, instead of getting traded, they get bought out after the trade deadline, I think the Clippers are going to be one of the early calls. Like who? Do you have a couple players in mind? Kevin Garnett. If he doesn't get, if he doesn't get traded, I think that Kevin Garnett going to the Clippers scares the ever-loving crap out of me. What about Ray Allen? Yeah, I think Ray, but he duplicates a lot of what they have. You know, what what do you how much better is Ray Allen than JJ Redick and Jamal Crawford? He's a great player. I think that he he'll do something. The place that I think Ray makes sense is Washington to kind of play play Beal's role when Beal's out. I'd love to see him on the Warriors too, just because I think that'd be a lot of fun. But I'm trying to think. I think I think there's going to be times. I think there's going to be times if the Clippers are to beat the Warriors, there's going to be. There's gonna have to be times when they have Chris Paul. Uh, they have. They're gonna have to have. They ideally would have three of the following four on the court: Chris Paul, Redick, Jamal Crawford, or Ray Allen. So that would get. And then Barnes is out of there. I think that's their best. That would be their best chance against the Warriors. I agree with that because Barnes. Barnes is too. 
you got to score. You got to be. You got to have guys that can shoot. I think if Ray Allen goes to the Clippers, that's a little. That'll hurt the Warriors a little. I, I, that's what I was wondering. It's like everyone's like, "Oh, the Warriors have talked to Ray Allen. Why wouldn't he go back with Doc?" And it seemed to me that would be probably be his first choice. A guy he has comfort a comfort level with. I mean, I don't know, but I'm just. Yeah, I mean, yeah. or or he could go to Cleveland because Cleveland could use a guy like him. I mean, whatever wherever Ray wants right. to go, they'll have an interest in him. But he, right. whether he wants to play, it's such an interesting situation because it doesn't really happen very much where a guy basically gets his pick of options. It's not like he's going to be a starter most places, but he could end up swinging a series or two. Yeah, definitely. An- another guy who I think could get bought out, and I don't think he's a great fit for the Warriors, though it would be fun, is Amare, if the Knicks keep on being the Knicks, because he's having a good year, and if you're asking him, as you said, a 15- to 20-minute guy, that would be a really nice role for him for this for the end of this year to go into what could, could potentially be his last anything other than minimum contract. For who? The Warriors? Well, for for some team in the West, it could be the Clippers. I think he makes some sense on the Clippers. I think he I think he makes some sense on the Warriors if you just add him to the pile. Yeah, I think I think it's funny. The first the team that came to mind for me was the uh, the Grizzlies. Just give them three guys who could post up. Oh, that'd be you know? nasty. Ugh, ugh. So you could kind of you know you have Amari on the floor when you didn't have Zach, or you could even play Amari at center sometimes in the West, but. Yeah, that's not that's not a bad name either. Oh, it's funny, so, the one team we aren't we don't talk about is Portland. Yeah, well, Portland's good. I think I think that they're. I don't think their defense is all this way. I think they're. I was talking with somebody about this a couple days ago. Is what I feel bad about is that if they were in the East, I think right now they would be they would have been the best team so far in the Eastern Conference. But the West is so strong, and when you condense the rotations, because in the playoffs you're not going to be playing ten guys, you're going to be playing your starters more. Teams like the like the Warriors and particularly the Spurs get so much more dangerous. But for Portland, they're already playing a tight rotation. Yeah, I, I mean Portland just doesn't. They don't do it for me. I don't think they they have enough. I you know I think Houston could, but they, I don't think Houston's coached well at all. And then, you know that's one where. I see the Warriors kind of making mincemeat out of the Rockets in terms of coaching. If that's if that uh, ends up being a series, we saw it last uh, week. I don't think there's yeah, I don't think there's any team in the East that can win a title, and that includes Cleveland. Nor do I think it's possible for Cleveland to get there this season. They're only expecting Cleveland to win a title next year. The Bulls, the Bulls are a no. They can't score enough, uh, even with Rose back. And what's the other? T- Toronto, no chance. Wizards yeah. are interesting. Actually, the Wizards, I would give the best chance of winning a title from the Eastern Conference right now. But yeah. they're still not going to do it. Yeah, I-, I would say that they all have, you know, the stereotypical, I'm giving the lawyer answer, puncher's chance, because everybody does. But no, none of them have anything better than that right now. I think Cleveland has the highest ceiling. But they're a long way from it right now. Their defense needs a lot of work. And as we've talked about with Bogut, rim protection is so important in the league right now. And they built this team, at least right now, without that really. And so they might be able to get it, however it could happen. But until they do, I'm not going to take them super seriously because their offense isn't the super elite offense that I thought it was going to be because that's the only way you can win with a slightly above average even defense right now. Yeah, I think I just think with Cleveland, I just don't think Love and Kyrie Irving are championship players. Not right now. And I don't think they can get there in fifty games. 
I just don't think, you know, it's really, really hard to win a title. And, and I don't like, I just don't, even Miami didn't do it that first year. I don't, I think it's kind of just, you know, just setting, settling in how hard it's going to be and how hard they're going to have to play and how different they're going to have to play. And it's just going to take a long time if it happens at all. I mean, I just, you know, I just, I watched Kyrie Irving play and, you know, it's a, I mean, same thing. And I'm, I was disappointed in this guy last night. As good as Westbrook is, you know, down the stretch of a game, you can't be making a bad play, making a good play, making a stupid play, making a good play, making a bad play, making a good play, making a stupid play. You know what I mean? You just can't, you can't do that. And that's why I think they're they're not they're not going to get there this year the, the the Cavaliers, and that's why I have doubts about the the Thunder ever winning it all. You know I love half of them, but I can't stand the other half. I think that it, it ties in with with Russ and with Kyrie into a similar thing is that they're both so prodigiously talented. But I haven't seen a ton of growth from either. Like people, there was a, a Jalen Rose was on the Grand right. Basketball Hour yesterday, and he was talking about how. Russ is the same guy, and everybody else didn't appreciate him, and I think that's pretty true. You know, I've known Russell since his freshman year of college. I, w- I was there then. We saw this in him. I mean, his confidence has grown leaps and bounds since then, but in terms of his game and all of that, I don't see that much growth. Maybe his mid-range game has gotten better, and Kyrie, what makes me so disappointed in him right now is that the reason why people are so excited when a guy at 19 or 20 has huge seasons is because there's the growth. That's why with Anthony Davis, when he had those seasons when he was really young and people went, oh, he's going to get so much better. Kyrie hasn't gotten much better. You can say injuries are part of that, and they certainly are, but he hasn't gone from that high starting point to a, a, a new plane. He's still good. He's still fun. He's still a very talented player. But when you see those guys with those talents, and I think about a guy like Stephen Curry, or to translate it to a different position, and this is where I wanted to kind of end, end it in the sense is, you and I both covered Clay early in his career. It is shocking to me how much better he is as an all-around offensive player, particularly, than he was even two years ago. Incredible. It's profound. And unless you're a Warrior fan who watches every, all the games, you have no idea. I mean, it used to be it was a joke among the fans and even within the franchise. It was a joke that Clay could not make layups. He could not make layups. And now, I mean, it's almost I mean, it's crazy if you think about it. Now he's a finisher, period. He's a finisher at the rim. I mean, if you, the, the thing, you know, what, the thing I hear from like a lot of ex players that when they always, they're guys that catch their eye, like there's certain things that catch certain guys' eyes. And, and like Mullen's always a guy who he, he just talks to me about how he just loves guys who can do everything. And that's what he, that's, you know, that's, that's Clay Thompson. He's got a three point shot. He's now got to drive and finish at the rim. He's got a post-up game. He's got an in-between game. He's got this little fadeaway now. You know, it, stylistically, it's very different, but he's kind of, he's a little like Mitch Richmond in that way. He can do all those things. Now, he's not as strong as Mitch. He wasn't as 
doesn't play as big boy or, you know, doesn't bully guys in the low post. But three-point game, yes. Post-up game, yes. In-between game, yes. Floaters now, yes. So he is really hard to guard, Clay Thompson. Really hard. The other thing I think some maybe average fans don't understand, only very, very few players can do it, and that is be standing in a standstill position, elevate, and reach the basket with a basketball from three-point range. Most pro players cannot do that. Even pro players cannot do that. Shoot a a three-point jump shot without some kind of momentum. Clay's ability to catch and just spring up from a, not quite a standstill position, but on a dime with very limited movement is a gift. I mean, you know, I'm talking about guys like Kobe has it, had it Jordan had it not many guys have it and he has it which means he can always get a shot off because he can pop up so so quickly he doesn't worry about his shot getting blocked and that's an incredible uh, advantage to have especially when you can reach the basket from three-point range and it's incredible and the other component of everything the serendipity for this Warriors team is that the timing worked perfectly. He got to have the experience to grow his game and his confidence with the FIBA guys and do all that, and then he comes into an offense that asks him to do more. And I'm not sure he could do what he's doing now last year, and he didn't have to, and now he does. And it's really fun for me also because he's. We were t- I was talking about how Kyrie and guys like that, you know, when they come into the league really young, you get so excited. Clay was in college for a few years, and I, I, the stat that I've, I've thrown out there before is, Clay, when he played his first NBA game, was older than Bradley Beal is now. And Bradley Beal has been in the league for years. So he didn't come into the league super young. I mean, he, he was, he, you know, he was still, it wasn't like he was 25 like Taj Gibson. But mm-hmm. he's been able to add this growth as he's going into his second contract as a guy who played, I believe, three years of college. It's, it's incredible. I don't. I can't really think of many other examples of a guy who has made the adjustments that he's made at that age, but it's honestly, it's thrilling in a way. I mean, he's, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't know much about him when they drafted him. And, you know, the one thing I remember that, you know, it's funny how now you look back at some of the things that were said and they're all, you know, so many of them are wrong. And I remember one of them, I probably said it. Um, Remember when Mark Jackson started Clay Thompson and he basically played Clay no matter what Clay did, whether he shot quickly or whether he's turning it over, you know, and everybody was worried that Clay was going to become someone who, you know what I mean? Would you, that, that he'd been given the keys to the car without earning it, you know, remember that? Yep. Kind of like people say with Levine now in Minnesota. Yeah, sure. I, I the guy I always use for that uh, is Damon Stoudemire in Toronto. He yep. came in the league as rookie of the year. Isaiah Thomas is a little bit like that. The the new Isaiah Thomas, you know. Nevertheless, you know, and he and I think people, you know, he shows obviously he's a mature guy because he doesn't play that way. You know what I mean? He didn't turn into a turnover machine or a, or you know or greedy. And he looks for a shot. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, you know, he's not. I don't think I don't consider him a greedy player, and I don't consider him sloppy, and I don't consider him as a guy who feels entitled. 
even though all those things theoretically could happen when, when you get what he got so early. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And what I always think about with Clay is, so after his rookie years, this was in the uh, fall of 2012, at Media Day, his session was at the same time as somebody else. I can't remember. It was probably David Lee or somebody like that. And I was the only one at his table. And so I asked him a question that I love to ask NBA players, and it's, what do you want to, what do you want to do to grow your game? What do you, what do you see as your direction? And what he told me then was, I really, he'd been watching how Harden had done and how he wanted to get to the line more and he wanted to get better at the rib. And so I was sitting there, I'm like, that's really encouraging. That is what I wanted him to do as well. And the following season and a little bit last year, you're sitting there going, well, he had the right idea, but we're not seeing it. And then now, more than two years later, it's all come together and you can see it that it and it takes that time, you know, to get from to where he is now from where he was. It takes a lot of time and you see that it takes a lot of work even for these supremely talented athletic people to become the players they want to be. And it's great to see it. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing is some guys, you know, let's take Nick Stauskas and I'm taking him because I haven't seen a lot of him. But Clay Thompson was lucky enough. He came into the league and he figured out, oh, you know what? I can get my shot off here or some of the stuff that I used to do still works here. Or you know what? The pace of the game, the pace that I played at in college, uh, you know what? By and large, it translates here. And so, so Thompson's first year, he's basically gets to play like he always played. And is just really adjusting to the game, to the lifestyle, to all that stuff. And then a year goes by, and he's like, you know what? I can now. I can try to get better. But I think there's a lot of guys, like let's say Stauskas, or I probably shouldn't use him because I don't want to use somebody who's, I, you know, I I'm kind of using him because I don't know a ton about him. But you know, maybe he's like, God, I I'm having trouble getting a shot off. I'm, re, you know, like he, like he not like I guarantee you, Jimmer for debt when he came into the league. It didn't take long before he knew in his own head that, oh, no, I'm in a little trouble here because I can tell my threes are under more duress and I'm not as sure with the ball as I was in college. These guys are quicker. They're making me go to my left hand or whatever. You know, and now all of a sudden get into the league and you're kind of flailing because you don't have anything to hang your hat on except maybe a, a you know maybe a spot up three point shot and then even then if you're not getting a lot of them those get big so that like I think that's where Clay even maybe you're right about the age too I think that's where he's ahead of a lot of these guys he for whatever you know he, he, he's lucky enough to play a ton as a rookie and then he realized as a rookie guess what I can I can play all right I can I can I can get my stuff here I got to get better but but I'm not overwhelmed. I think that's huge. Yeah, and I think also the benefit of having a better idea of what he was getting into, having a dad who was in the league and who was still around the league, and also playing with a teammate whose dad was in the league and who was a year earlier, I think all of that really helped him too, but I I think your point about having something to hold on to is a huge one, and I think also was probably one of the biggest challenges for Harrison Barnes, because Harrison Barnes was an athletic guy, but he wasn't getting really anything then. And he didn't have anything to hang his hat on like Draymond Green did with defense when he got on the floor rebounding. And so 
finding your identity is a lot easier when you have a grounding point. And even if you have to grow from that, at least you have something to work from. Yeah, I mean, even if Harrison's was athleticism, which it, it partly is, you know, it's it can be anything. You know, it can be anything. I mean, you know, if, it, if it's just athleticism, then, you know, try to get some dunks and then build from there, you know. But, yeah, you, you got to have something. And, you know, the good ones figure out, wow, they might have, you know, at some point Draymond figured out, look, I mean, at some point Draymond figured out that he wasn't a tweener in the sense that he couldn't guard, you know, he wasn't quick enough to guard threes nor tall enough to guard fours. At some point he realized, actually, I'm the opposite of of a tweener. I can guard both. And that mere mindset change or that mere uh, if people start looking at it like that, well, guess what? That's the difference between success and failure. If Draymond Green was a typical 6'6 guy who couldn't guard threes or fours, well, guess what? He can guard them both. Well, how do you tell the difference there? How, how do you know? I mean, if, if we all knew the tweeners that could do what he's doing, they would have been picked before him. So, you know, how do you find it? I don't know, but Draymond probably found it pretty early. Draymond, knowing him, probably knew he had it even before he came into the league. And, and he knew it would translate because he probably played in a million tough pickup games. So he had that. But some guys don't, can't find anything. Yeah, that that's definitely, that's a really interesting point. Uh, I was thinking about, one thing I was thinking about for the last question as somebody who enjoys basketball like I do is, we'll exclude the Northern California teams because I think that, that makes it more fair. What teams and players do you just really enjoy watching this year? I have watched some of Cleveland uh, out of curiosity, and I've been very disappointed. Very disappointed. I don't, I'm not crazy about that coach either. I don't know that he- I don't know that he's got the chops to get it done. Uh, believe it or not, I, I enjoy watching Memphis. And part of it's because <laughs> I like Gasol and I like Randolph, but I'm actually fascinated by how terrible Tony Allen is offensively. And <laughs> I enjoy watching. I really do enjoy watching how terrible he He was so bad the other day. He almost, he almost, he almost gave the Warriors a win the other night because he can't even make a layout. He's, he's so bad offensively. So I do like watching Memphis a little bit. You know, it's, it's a lot of teams I was curious about. So I've definitely checked out Phoenix a lot. They're going nowhere. Phoenix is going absolutely nowhere. I like watching Houston because I really, I, I don't think they're a very smart team. And so I kind of watch Houston. Like I like, it was fun for me to watch Houston against the Warriors. And I don't, I don't like the Warriors. You know, I don't really have a favorite team. I watch the Warriors more than anybody. But I was looking forward to the Warriors-Houston game because I just knew Houston was going to – they just weren't going to play smart enough to win the game. I just knew it. And they didn't. And the Warriors won. And so it's like kind of – you know, I watch Anthony Davis. I've been watching him more. So I kind of, I kind of flail around. But it is – I'd say – 75% Western Conference. So I like watching the Clippers because I still view them as a big rival of the, of the Warriors. And I, I just, when I watch them, I, I just see something missing. And I don't know. And it's, it's on the wing. I know it's on the wing, but I don't know how they're going to 
I like watching them, though, too. For me, beyond the young guys, I've really enjoyed watching the Jazz this year. I'm a huge Rudy Gobert guy. I'm a big fan of him. Is The fact that Tim Duncan's still bringing it, I, it just makes me happy. I don't know what it is that it makes me reaffirming it. I don't feel old yet or anything like that, but seeing a guy who's just going out there and still playing so well and playing with so much desire when he's out on the court it just makes me happy. It's just amazing that, uh, you know, with his disposition and his demeanor, that the reality is he's got more inner fire than, you know, 99.9% of the players in the world. It's just incredible. And everybody thought he was going to kind of be the guy, oh, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll roll as soon as he, you know what I mean? Oh, he, he's a guy, he doesn't need the game. He'll, he'll take off as soon as he gets, and maybe he will. But, you know, I also think it's a testament to the Popovich method of, you know, of not playing guys big minutes. It's like, you know, it's John Stockton played almost 20 years, and Jerry Sloan subbed for him every single game at, six, at the six-minute mark. He played six minutes, and he went to the bench. You know, Malone, Carl Malone, to me, was a little different. He was just a freak. You know, he was just a, you know, he was just a beast. So that's why he, he, you know, had longevity to me. But I think a lot of it is managing minutes. There's no doubt. And thinking of players as assets, and I wonder if that's going to be something that changes as the new salary cap goes into play with the new television deal of whether, like a lot of these owners are businessmen now, particularly there are less teams that are familially owned, they'll understand that these these are assets. You know, These are guys that are doing that, and you can extend their careers if you treat them well. Well, it's just, you know, to me, it's, you know, I, whatever, Toronto. They lost, They lose DeRozan. New Orleans doesn't have Eric Gordon. Dallas was missing Parsons the other night. Dwight Howard's been hurt for a good portion of the year. Bogut's out now. DeMarcus Cousins missed a bunch of playing time. You know, you just you just go down every single list of teams, and you know, it's just it's unrealistic to believe that guy, these guys can play eighty games and play in the preseason, and, oh, by the way, maybe play another 25 in the postseason. Oh, and let's work out now in the offseason. Let's play international. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, uh, I, would, I, would, I think there will be a time where, you know, it'll be where you'll acquire guys and you basically be like, yeah, he's, we're going to play 60 of the 82 games. Period. And here, and here are the X's of the games he's not playing. I'll, you know, I'll tell you right now, he's going to sit on March 5th when they play the Indiana Pacers. You know, that's coming soon. Yep. If, if so. it were totally your decision, like let's say you had unilateral control over it, how long do you think the NBA season should be? 60 games. That should be a 60-game season. That's exactly... My, my thing is that I think that they should... They should cut it to you play every team twice, and that would afford them the flexibility if they wanted to. And I'm I'm a favor of generally of contraction over uh, over expansion, but they could go to thirty two. They could go to thirty two teams. So then it's you know low 60s, 64, Play everybody twice, no back to backs. I think that's where it should end up. 
Yeah, I do too. But I, I don't know. I don't think it's going to come in my lifetime. Maybe yours, young fella. Let's hope, because to me, what's so interesting about it is, as I understand it, and I don't have the access to the books that some other people do, is to me, what I've understood is that most NBA teams make most of their money in the postseason because they pay the players less and they charge more for tickets. And it's a benefit of half the teams in the league making the playoffs. So... If it's true that you make a vast majority of your money in the ra- in the playoffs as opposed to the regular season, increasing the share of the playoffs to the regular season might actually work. But the problem is you have to actually, if for those who own their buildings, use it for those other days and they're scared of losing revenue. I feel like they can get to the point, if a team is in the right place and run intelligently, that that becomes less of an issue and then you can make a more effective economic argument. Yeah. Makes sense to me, man. Let's make it happen. Uh, yeah, we're king, kings of the world. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking time. It was great to talk to you. Hey, thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks again to Matt Steinmetz for taking the time to come on. You can listen to him on the NBA show, which is on 95.7 FM in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he also is co-hosting a new podcast called The Sal and Steiny Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or at thesalandsteinyshow.libsyn.com. You should also follow him on Twitter at SteinmetzNBA. That's S-T-E-I-N-M-E-T-Z-N-B-A. A lot of fun having him on. We've talked Warriors for years, and his insight, I think, was great. And I loved his comments on how the three-point line has changed the sport. And I hadn't really thought of it that way, but I really agree with that. So loved having him on. Always loved talking with him. Loved to have an excuse to do so. Thanks to all of you for listening. As I always say, if you have any comments to make the show better, you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me, daniel.larue at realgm.com. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it. Positive, negative, whatever is in between. So I don't know exactly what the schedule is going to be for the next few weeks. I'm hoping to do a couple. Right now, I'm not anticipating doing a year in review. It's such a strange concept that... It was fun to do last year, but we don't really have the place for it now. So I want to have on plenty of guests. And as I always say, if you have somebody who you'd like to have on, let me know. And more importantly, let them know. And it's going to be a really fun stretch because we're just getting into the part where we feel like we have an idea where the league is going. But there's still plenty of intrigue and hopefully there'll be more good health because that is something that's lingering. And as Matt Simons and I talked about something that I would love to see the league correct and my proposal in there of having a I guess it would be a 62 game season because if there were 32 teams everyone playing everybody twice would be a 62 game season that would be the ideal solution for me I'm hoping to write some pieces on it but that's the concept and again thank you for listening for those of you who are listening to this around the holidays have a happy holidays whatever you end up celebrating and thanks again take care and make it a great day When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud 
GEICO makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on GEICO.com or the GEICO mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything!